Hello and welcome to La Pausa Pod. Today it's myself and Jamie along with special guest Tom Harris from The Athletic who writes data-centered story, uh, stories and loves La Liga. We will, we will be discussing the Clasico today, a tough one to take for Xavi and Barcelona, but a moral victory nonetheless, although Ilkay Gundogan isn't here for moral victories. What happened at the end with, with two goals from Jude Bellingham didn't do much to quiet the conspiracy theories that Bellingham isn't actually human. And the, the, the Jude Bellingham narrative drives on. The two lads had the Clasico on tape delay on, on Saturday. Jamie was watching Leeds batter Huddersfield. And Tom was covering Leicester City as they beat QPR. Tom, were you at least following on your phone? Oh yeah, I had um, you know, we had Sky Sports on the on the TVs in the press box, so we got the updates as we were going along. But yeah, um, one eye on the Clasico and one eye on QPR Leicester. What a what a day! And Jamie with Leeds United's white shirts, it must have felt like you're watching Real Madrid, no? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. It's a lot more fun watching the Championship than being a, a bad Premier League team. I like. Kind of, kind of hope we don't go up just to prolong this uh, enjoyment of battering teams with our all our attackers that should be playing in top flight leagues somewhere. And are season tickets cheaper in the championship? A weird question, but um, no, not really. English football in general is just ridiculously overpriced these days, so you, you just you kind of have to accept it. I mean, there's not much else to do in England but watch football, especially in winter. So we grin and bear it. Hold on now, you're talking, we're talking on a La Liga podcast here where the ticket prices are just insane. Real Betis had a, a special offer on the other day, tickets were like 50 euro, uh, and this was like uh, some big thank you to the fans. It's like, geez, still pretty expensive, lads. it's not much of a, a gift, but anyway, Jamie, I want your one-line analysis of the Classico before I go to Tom on this one. Oh, yeah, you've, you've just dropped this on us right before the show, and I, I honestly cannot... I cannot think of a, a one-liner that doesn't revolve around Jude Bellingham. So, yeah, the inevitable Jude Bellingham. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. That, that, it works, yeah. And Tom, what's your one-line instant analysis? Yeah, uh, Gavi is everywhere, I'll go for. Because, yeah, Bellingham also yeah had to had to steal the show. But I thought Gavi w- was amazing. And just the amount of times he just popped up in the most random positions, making these like last-ditch tackles was, was just really, really good to see. Yeah, a completely different role for him. And it was only when he pushed out that Real Madrid did get a, more of a foothold. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but let's get into some more detailed analysis here. Jamie's J- Jamie's has written notes on, on the game, and I was just reading through them, and I agree with so much of what he was saying, but we, we'll start out with Barcelona take the first half in performance and on the scoreboard. They led 1-0. Pretty lucky goal from Ilkay Gundogan, but as Jude Bellingham said later on, you make your own luck, and Ilkay Gundogan was there. I spoke about the on the podcast last week about Ilkay Gundogan's ingenuity, in his ingenuity being that what he does in and around the box, and he found himself in in space. Ball bounced kindly to him, not once but twice, and he he did finish it really well to take the lead. But Barcelona controlled the game from there in the first half, but didn't really look like scoring again. And I guess that it, that comes back to a lot of what Gundogan was saying. Maybe that they were kind of happy with a one nil. It felt like, and I uh, I'm not sure that they really forced the issue when they did have control of the game in the first half. Tom, what after on watching back in the first half, what were your what were your thoughts? 
Yeah, very similar. I mean, I think especially against Real Madrid, who, you know, we've seen them cling on for dear life so many times in games where they've been dominated to, to not, you know, push through that advantage as Barcelona didn't manage to do, ended up costing them. And yeah, I think they tactically, I think they won the first half. Um, I think Real Madrid were caught out a little bit by by what Barcelona did, which was kind of reverting to a bit of a back five to pushing um, Balde and Cancelo really high up. And, you know, one of the main things that I noticed was that Fede Valverde was basically ended up playing as a right back for Real Madrid just because Balde was so high up. There was João Felix, who was just kind of in between the lines and Valverde had to, you know, shuffle back, be that auxiliary right back. And that meant that Real Madrid lost quite a lot. You know, you look at Valverde's kind of transitional potential, how good he is going forward. It meant that whenever Real Madrid did get the ball, they looked a little bit crowded out in attacking areas. So I thought... There was a few chances. I think um, Vinicius only had one shot in the first half and that basically came from Rodrigo running through five players. That was really the only way they were going to have chances in that first half. So I think, yeah, Barcelona definitely won the tactical battle. But yeah, I think they needed a little bit more cutting edge, which, as you said, and as Gundogan kind of alluded to in the end, ultimately cost them. And Jamie, that's something that we noted as well. And... And Danny Carvajal was picking up Joe Felix, kind of, and he ended up playing almost as a right centre back in that five, and did did quite well. I think he probably came out. Yeah, he he did, he did win that battle with Joe Felix in the end. Felix was taken off. What were your thoughts upon watching the first half, Jamie? Yeah, I think it was a game where both teams showed each other quite a lot of respect. When the Clasico comes around, I think you you find out what the coaches are, are really thinking. Uh, about what they can trust in and the players that they can, the players and positions that they can get away with in general league games versus a, a Clasico. So, like you said, Valverde was dropping in to make a back five a lot. It be- it became you know a five three two pretty much, and with Barca playing three centre backs plus Gavi and Gundogan in front, it made life really hard for Real Madrid to get pressure on the ball and. I thought Barcelona could have been a little bit better in leveraging that because watching Real Madrid in these last last three, four weeks, it's been a consistent theme that they, they just can't really force turnovers. Rodrigo and Vinicius, you don't really know what you're going to get from them uh, in an out-possession sense. Bellingham is, as we know, he he wants to pressure the ball every time he can. He, he wants to be aggressive. And there were a number of times in that first half where... Bellingham is kind of pressing on his own and Gavi or Fermin will just pop up in the space behind him with nobody coming up to back him up. So it, it was a game where Xavi said, you know, we have to really minimise turnovers because Real Madrid can kill you once they win the ball back. And they had that for the first half, extending to about an hour. And then from there, that's when Real Madrid started to turn the screw a bit. But, it, but I... I... I agree. I agree with that, and, and I think that you could sense that from what, from how Barcelona played. And I, but but I also think in order to play the way that Barcelona typically play, the way that we know how they play, or, and want to play, you have to be braver in possession. You have to you have to risk bringing the ball into into congested areas and trust yourself that you're going to be able to keep it, that you're going to have a teammate. And I just don't ever feel. And this is exactly why they didn't look like scoring again. And so. Just out of possession, Barcelona, or sorry, we'll start with in possession. They attacked basically solely down the left-hand side in that first half. And I wonder 
so they found a solution or they feel like they found a solution with Joe Felix on the left now and Balde as the left, the widest left man. Joe Felix can drift inside and cause problems there. Now, obviously, they were missing their their, their number nine, so they had to make adjustments with Ferran Torres, who I felt like worked hard, but he, there wasn't too much play going through him. But on the right-hand side then, Fermin Lopez, obviously, the man at the moment in the Champions League game midweek, and did quite well today, but out of possession, I, I felt like he. We, we talk about regaining the ball. Barcelona couldn't do, couldn't win it back. There was always a spare man, whether it was Cruz, Valverde, and I feel like Fermin Lopez. Whether, now, whether this was his role or just his own willingness to, to follow men, but he kind of felt like he was neither pressing nor dropping, and I, I just, I, I, I and that's where I feel like. Um, Barcelona were a kind of a mishmash of, of, of a couple of things without really committing fully to any one thing. Yeah, I mean, I think both teams, I agree that both teams got caught in between pressing and sitting off qu quite often, but I felt like it was more pronounced on Real Madrid's side in the first half. Um, but Tom, I just wanted to ask you, um, thinking beyond the Clasico for a moment, do you think that initial lineup from Xavi going to three centre-backs, playing the likes of Cancelo higher up. Do you think that's going to be, although they lost the game, going to be a solution going forward for the for the bigger matches, and especially in Europe where they've really not clicked yet or found uh, the solution under Xavi? Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with Robbie in, in that just that extra bit of ambition would have helped. I mean, you see in the second half when Camavinga comes on and just the kind of adventurous forward running that he brings that really does kind of lift the whole team up the pitch and I think Barcelona maybe could have done with that kind of profile in the first half but what I do like about this formation is that it really gets you know Araujo and uh, Inigo Martinez as well who I thought was excellent it gets them running up the pitch and I think it's really really useful that you know you've got a player like Inigo who can carry the ball forward who can spear those kind of cross field passes over to the opposite side Araujo can do much of the same. I think it's a really nice kind of way to get those two involved in, in a bit more of an attacking sense rather than just having them as two centre-backs. So I do like that. Um, what I did have a little bit of a problem with is just, yeah, the kind of once they got the ball into those attacking areas, especially with kind of Fermin and Gundogan, there was just a bit of a difficulty in, in them turning and, and you know, attacking and facing forward. And I think against bigger teams and, you know, like Real Madrid, they're going to need to do that a bit more quickly and with a bit more incision. But I think it's 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 a different option. And, and if Barcelona are ever struggling in games, it's probably something that they can switch to in-game just to get a bit more width because, yeah, um, Balde and Cancelo were, were quite good at stretching the pitch. Yeah, and I guess we can't really talk about Barcelona without talking about the injuries. Frankie de Jong is the answer to that really because as good as Ilkay Gundogan was I thought and he he really did his performance on the pitch backed up what he was saying he, he was trying to move them forward now obviously he's in his 30s now and he's limited physically but he, he he did try to do everything he could to to move the ball into the box and get the ball into more dangerous positions but but that's kind of when it broke down Joe Felix who we'll, we'll talk about in a minute and and, and Fedan just couldn't get a, a I, uh, I, I was just looking at touches in the box and Joe Felix only had one and I just feel like an, another promising performance from him but ultimately disappointing and 
yeah we, we so in in terms then of of how javi set up with gabby playing as the most offensive midfielder ilke gundigan to his left picking up fede valverde gabby was obviously told to just mark bellingham and he did a really good job of it do you think that's a position that gabby can sorry i'll, I'll word it like this as good as gabby was there does it does he have a the skills to play as the pivot as a pivot and does he what does it take away from his game then going forward go on tom i'll let you have that Sorry. one <laughs> <laughs> um yeah um i quite like gabby in this position um i think obviously you know you look at the last couple of you know, the last year or so i think gabby has become a little bit more disciplined in his tackles his Yellow card count has slightly reduced. Obviously, he's still got that in him where he does have that moment of just overexcitement and, and gets those bookings and that can can cost his team. But I think just his energy, and I think, you know, when Romeo came on, for example, I think we could see that there was a difference in in how the the forward runs were being tracked. There was a really good example in, in the second half where Gavi kind of Bellingham makes a run through and, and Gavi is the, the one who spots him. He tracks him all the way back into the penalty area and then he makes that last-ditch tackle. And I think when you're facing a team who has those kind of dynamic midfielders, those athletic midfielders who can get forward, I think Gavi is really good there. And I think with Barcelona as well, you want Gundogan in that attacking position. You want Fermin Lopez with his, you know, his ball striking and his ability to kind of unlock defences by his forward runs. You want him in, those forward, in that forward position as well. So I think Gavi... While he is good going forward, I, I think I quite like this this role alongside Gundogan. And when Frankie Dion comes back as well, you know his energy off the ball is, is only going to unlock lock his his potential even more. Yeah, I was just going to note for that um, the the moments from Gavi tracking tracking Bellingham and that matchup. Um, Ancelotti said prior to the game that the idea was for for Bellingham to start explicitly you know on the left and cover that zone but they made the decision somewhere during the first half to to put Bellingham onto Gavi as a man marker and that that battle between those two was just it was just so fun to watch and obviously Bellingham gets the two goals at the end and basically win, wins by knockout but Gavi was was winning the rounds for, for for most of that game and one of my favorite moments from the entire match was it was right on the 60th minute where Bellingham had had found some space. He, he was starting to come inside to attack uh, Real Madrid in transition, and Gavi just stripped him of the ball, basically in the open field, and the crowd celebrated like a goal. And from that moment, with with Barca one up and Gavi basically putting that marker down on Bellingham, he thought Barcelona really in the ascendancy here, and to then lose from that position with two goals from Bellingham was just. Uh, yeah, it just speaks that inevitability about him at the moment. Even in a poor game by his standards, where he wasn't overly involved, he still somehow makes the difference. And it was only it was only when Gavi went to head the ball away and kind of fell over that Bellingham found himself in a yard of space to take that shot. Just back to Gundogan's comments because they they did get a lot of attention online in terms of the, the being the spiritual leader of this team, I think Gavi can do that because I've gone, and I tweeted this during the game, I've gone from not really understanding what he did, where his best position was, just how 
how he was going to fit into a Barcelona time to thinking now that he's you need to maybe build a side around him and w- within reason obviously he, he he's not the kind of a, a attacking player that you, you build around but in terms of just understanding what the game needs and and the amount of energy that he brings and there was one moment in the in the second half when i think it was Camavinga got a bit of space and Gabby turned around to Gundogan and he started shouting at him and he was like get get out on Valverde because Gundogan had been picking up Valverde and he was going out with to, to Real Madrid's right hand side to help out, and he didn't he didn't make it across in time, and that's when Valverde found a pass inside, and and Gavi was like yelling at him. So, do you think do you think do you think Gavi is going to get a, keep on growing into this role, and do you think do you build around him, or or what does that midfield tree look like, and what's his role in it? Um. Well, just going back to when I asked uh, Tom about, do you think? Barcelona will lean on this current system a bit more when everyone is fit. And I know that's that's a big if at the moment, but it is a way for them to get Gavi, uh, Pedri, Gundogan, and who who's the one I'm missing? Frankie. Gavi, uh, Frankie de Jong. Yeah, all, all four of those on the pitch at the same time. And for, for Xavi, in terms of getting Barcelona to... You know the optimal version of of Chavez Barcelona, which everybody's still very much anxious to see or expecting to see at some point. That that is a way to get them all on the pitch, and I like um, the way that they approach this game uh, with the system change. When you can get De Jong back alongside Gavi, I think at the base of midfield, and then Gundogan and Pedri as the two ahead, with Femin rotating in in those top two positions when he can. To me, that is the absolute best solution for for Barcelona at the moment. Once they can get everybody back fit. So, Tom, we learned not long after the Clasico that Chouamani will be out for at least two months with a foot injury, which will never really mean Camavinga comes in alongside Cruz to do the heavy lifting at the base of midfield. How do you see that trade off in losing Chouamani but bringing Camavinga Camavinga to the fore in midfield? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think Camavinga has the energy to play that role obviously um he also has a kind of defensive just tenacity the destructive nature in his tackling that he can definitely anchor a midfield but i think you do lose slightly a the adaptability that kamavinga brings at left back you know if he has to play at center back you can't have him all over the pitch you can't have him popping up in different areas i mean i was going to say when when kamavinga came on I think Kroos had a shot early in the second half where he kind of had a, had a low shot to Stegen, went down to save it on his left. And that move starts with Kamavinga at left back, kind of spinning Ferran Torres with, with a brilliant piece of skill and ends with Kamavinga on the right wing, you know, playing a ball into Kroos to have a shot. So when he has a bit more positional responsibility, i.e. In, in that Chouamini role, I think we might lose a bit of that, you know, balance he can bring across the pitch. And also, Shuameni is, is so good at switching the ball from side to side over long distances. And obviously, while Kamavinga is massively talented, we're yet to see whether he has that kind of tempo-setting ability with his passing. So I think they will they will lose a lot from from not having Shuameni there. But defensively, I think they'll be fine. And, you know, you look at their run of fixtures for these, you know, approximately two months when, when Shuameni is not there, there are not too many huge games. There's obviously Napoli in, in, in the Champions League and there are a few tricky games in La Liga, but they're games that they will be expecting to dominate the ball. And when they can do that, I, I think, you know, Camavinga in that role should be fine, even though it's not the the ideal. 
Yeah, yeah, I was thinking the same actually with just looking ahead to Madrid's fixtures in these next two months. It, it's actually come at quite a nice time if there's ever a good time to lose Tromeni for two months. Um, but yeah, Camavinga is, me and Robbie were saying on the last episode, you look at the, the individual stats from Real Madrid games when Camavinga plays and it's just incredible the amount of activity uh, that he adds up on uh, on those stats, you know, tackles, interceptions, a lot of fouls as well, which is something they'll have to be a bit more wary of now that Tremeni is out and Camavinga is probably going to be playing more at the base of midfield. Um, but just on Camavinga, I think we should probably talk about how Real Madrid switched the game uh, on uh, on Saturday from about an hour on, once Camavinga had got on the pitch and then later Modric and Hosselu. From there, that was when Real Madrid started to turn the tide. So, yeah. How did you see not only Camavinga's entrance, but I think we should probably give special mention to Modric as well. He was the player who made the most passes from the ga- in the game from the moment he came on in the uh, 62nd minute. So, yeah, how, how did you see Real Madrid switching that game back in their favour? If you did feel like they really did show the the upper hand in that last part. Yeah, I mean, Camavinga, as, as we said, I think was a big one. I mean, if we're comparing his performance to, to Phil Mendy, who, you know, is a fine player. I think he's more of a overlapping kind of wing back. He, he's great if you want to use the wide areas. But in terms of carrying the ball, Camavinga, you know, there was, there was one progressive carry in the first half by Phil Mendy. There were five by Camavinga in the second Camavinga covered almost three times the distance with the ball at his feet than, than Phil Mendy did in, in, in the first half. So I think that was the big difference. And like you say, that example I mentioned before with that cross shot, you look at the bodies that Real Madrid then had in the attacking third, Camavinga really drove that all by himself. Whereas as Mendy you know, couldn't get forward as much, isn't as comfortable inverting into, into the middle of the pitch, which Camavinga definitely is. So I think, yeah, his entrance was a big one. But Modric as well, like you said, I think he had 15 touches in the attacking third after he came on, Luka Modric, which was more than any Real Madrid midfielder managed in the whole of the first half. So, you know, looking at his role more generally, I think Modric has become a lot more creative in in recent seasons. He's been really good at receiving the ball between the lines in the attacking third, and he definitely added that. And, yeah, like you say, the key to this game, I think, if you look in the first half, Real Madrid attacks are a bit isolated, a little bit bitty, where you had one or two players kind of foraying forward, surrounded by Araujo, by Inigo Martinez, these big, big players. In the second half, it was a lot more connected. And I think that was, yeah, mostly down to those two, two substitutions. Yeah, that, that shot you mentioned with with the Cruz, the low shot the Cruz took, that was kind of like the warning shot, I, I feel like, for Real Madrid. I was like, they're starting to push Barcelona back and I think Gabi knew because he was just kind of telling everyone to get out, get out, get out and Real Madrid had started then to Ancelotti as you said Tom about Ferland Mendy he wasn't getting forward really the game was it was almost like a stalemate at that point and it was real it was the onus was on Real Madrid to do something Camavinga come on and did that and we were just chatting before the podcast myself and Jamie how 100% he changed the game for them going forward he was able to drift inside and combine a little bit more, which freed up Valverde. Modric then adding another body into the mix. Modric had 12 passes in the final third during his time on the field, whereas Cruz only had 11. And Modric obviously got the touch on the on the, on the 
cross from Carvajal that led to the goal eventually and just put applying a little bit more pressure but going backwards then it also it just cracked the whole game open because his defensive positioning wasn't great and that's when Barcelona started to really attack down that right hand side Joe Cancelo came into the game Fermin Lopez played Joe Cancelo through and and in reality I know as Jamie said there that the, the Jude Bellingham narrative c- continues on but Barcelona easily could have taken a two goal lead early maybe not early but in, into the second half there before Bellingham's strike and so on Barcelona substitutions then we saw Rafinha created three chances uh, but he, he they were a little bit Lewandowski looked rusty Rafinha looked like he was trying to force it Lamine Yamal just didn't look ready what did you think about Barcelona substitutions um yeah I- I'll just step in there because that was one of the points I made in the in the document where Remedid's substitutes definitely had a positive impact in the game and I feel like Barcelona's had pretty much the inverse effect. Um, I just felt it was poor game management f- from from a number of those once they came on. Um, imprecisions from Lewandowski, um, including... Um, no, it, it wasn't for the winner. It was Rafinha who's... He made this just strange switch of play uh, late on in the match, which ultimately gave up possession. And from there, that's when Real Madrid built the attack that eventually led to the winner. Um, it just felt like... I don't think Barcelona deserved to lose this match, but they have to be critical with the way that they played in the last 15 minutes because Xavi had said before the game, you know, turnovers of the ball against Real Madrid is, is the one thing that we absolutely cannot allow in a game like this. And... It felt like in those last 15 minutes, it was a game where Barcelona should have taken charge of the game again, played at a slower tempo because Real Madrid was still not really pressing by this point and Valverde was still tracking back with uh, with Balde. Th- there was a point actually where it was the 83rd minute and Barcelona were just in settled possession around the halfway line. Real Madrid was sat off. It, it was a point of the match where both teams were tired and Yamal misplaced a pass uh, back to Inigo Martinez and he just went to fetch the ball and just marched back to his original position. So Real Madrid were not applying pressure at that point and Barcelona should have been able to manage the game better. Um, and again, Lewandowski gave up the pass um, later on in that spell of play and it ended up with Christensen having to make a last-ditch tackle against Vinicius on the counter probably 30 seconds later. So again... Gundawan was the one player that I felt still managed the tempo of the game and control throughout, but there were others that were lacking, uh, especially the substitutes that came on. Yeah, and on, on Romeo as well, I, I, I don't want to pick on him because you know he's he's been a player who's been really excellent um, in terms of ball retention, um, especially for Girona. He's one of the one of the players who allowed them to to really kind of you know push their their wide eights forward. You had Sigankov, you had Alej Garcia when he was at Girona. They were enjoying so much attacking freedom because of him. And I think in the early weeks at Barcelona as well, he was very good at being the anchor and being that player who allows you to dominate games by just being you know when the ball is in front of him, he's so good at patrolling that space. But I think the second runs are being made in behind him against you know high quality teams like Real Madrid. We kind of saw it against Shakhtar as well in the Champions League where 
there was lots of kind of vertical runs from opposition midfielders. That's when Romeo's game is it becomes slightly muddled and his positioning isn't quite right and he's not quite got the pace, the recovery pace of, of someone like Gavi. Um, and yeah, I think sometimes he just took a little bit too long on the ball as well. I think there were there were moments when he was a little bit ponderous and that also cost Barcelona too. So, you know, Romeo is a great player, but I think he's more of a player who's going to allow you to win kind of 20, 25 games of the season, but he's not the player who's going to allow you to win the big games. And I think in this instance, that kind of the drop-off between Gavi and, and Romeo in that position was also was also a big factor. Yeah, and we 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 thought it was a good signing, and it, it was a good signing exactly for what you said, Tom. To to for for a certain amount of control, that's fine. But then in the bigger games, he did he looks rigid, and there was a pass by Gundogan where Mod and and, and that's the other thing. Real Madrid knew that he was he needed to be he he was able to be pressed, and they were going to get some joy from pressing him. And Modric pushed up on him for one, and and Chouamani pushed up on him for another, and 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 almost won it back. I'm just wondering. Like they changed Gabby. Obviously, we don't know how tired Gabby was, but that was the changing of the game. Do you think that was tinkering for the sake of tinkering by Gabby, by Javi, pardon, um, by moving Gabby up the field? He didn't take him off, he moved him up the field, and it felt like Gabby, if he was tired, you, you, you just leave him in his position and maybe get him to hold the centre rather than bringing him on for the, or sorry, pushing him up the field and it felt like he was actually having to do more. So was that a change by Jabby to get more control by bringing Romeo on or was it to relieve Gabby of his defensive duties because he was getting so tired or was it a change just for the sake of a change just to freshen things up because I think that's actually probably was the losing of the game in reality yeah I mean I don't know how you saw it Tom but I thought it was it was more to do with general fatigue in the team than anything else because if there's one thing you can say about Real Madrid where they have a clear advantage over Barcelona, I think it is in general physicality and just physical strength. Players like Valverde, Chouameni, Bellingham, even at the late stage of the game, when they've get you know they've got 70, 80 minutes in their legs, they are still you know very much uh, able to match players like uh, Gundogan and, and Romeo when he comes on. So. If Barcelona are not controlling the game by that point, and I don't, I don't know whether Romeo was was a move on Xavi's part to try and regain control because it, it didn't really work. But I felt like they were just shuffling players in and out to try and match the physicality by that point. And we saw Cancelo and Felix go off uh, just before that, and it was I, I felt that was the right time for those two to go off in the match, just from a, a defensive uh, perspective and keeping you know the intensity level and, and and activity without the ball because yeah you could you could feel it by that point that Real Madrid was starting to come on in the match and Barcelona were were wilting a little bit and they had to recover with the ball ra- rather than without it yeah I completely agree I mean it does make you wonder how it would have gone if, if Frankie de Jong and Pedri were available because they do have stamina and they do have that ability to keep the ball under pressure and maybe they would have been the two to, to see this game out. Yeah, I wonder are we ever going to get to see Javi's ideal Barcelona because they're just he has really been unlucky with injuries. He said that we dominated 
for 60 minutes and we scored once and Real Madrid had 25 good minutes and they scored twice and it was obviously that man Jude Bellingham who we'll speak about now his first goal it was a his first goal the one from the the long one was the furthest shot he's taken as a Real Madrid as a Real Madrid player so far where he's we're used to seeing him score tap-ins but he can score all a variety of different kinds of goals and I'm just wondering on watching that again Ter Stegen had made a save to his right with a big strong hand just prior to that and he, he went to go with the same strategy for the, for this one do you think he could have done slightly better for that one Tom? Yeah I think so if we're being hypercritical and zooming into these kind of moments which I guess you have to do in big games they're, they're, they're what cost you you know can win you titles in the end at the end of the day yeah, he, he kind of, I'm no goalkeeping expert, I'm not going to pretend to <laughs> tell him that he should have gone with a different hand, but he did seem to be reaching across his body with his opposite hand to try and just try and you know make that stop and potentially if he could have gone with his left and, and, and pushed it away, maybe would have got a bit more purchase on it. But yeah, obviously, we've seen a lot of statistics about Barcelona's defensive record this season versus last season. I think we have to appreciate that last season was a bit of an anomaly and that Stegen shouldn't be expected to perform at the level he performed at last season because it was it was incredible and you know he only conceded I think it was ten non penalty goals last season in, in the league he's already conceded that this season so yeah it's a drop off in performance from him but I don't think we can be too harsh generally just because of the high standards he was setting but yeah maybe maybe could have done a bit better with this one Jamie goalkeeper uh, the podcast <laughs> goalkeeper expert here <laughs> yeah I mean. I'm I'm the same as Tom. Nobody wants to be that guy who is like you know mm. overanalyzing goalkeepers because I think it is quite a bit of a grey area with football analysis. I, I don't feel really comfortable critiquing a goalkeeper overly, but at the same time, there was an angle from from directly um, you know directly facing the goal. Um, so at Bellingham's back, where you watch it again and you think. I'm not going to say to Stegen should have saved it, but I think personally he will be disappointed with his his own role in that goal. And obviously, you see Bellingham put one in the top corner live, and you think, you know, "Wow, we'll do, we'll just stay with the moment of Bellingham doing that in a Clasico." But if we're being totally honest, it, probably to Stegen should have done better with the shot. Um, but yeah. In just in terms of Barcelona's general defensive record, it, it's something we'd spoken about before that you felt that Barcelona, even if they defended with exactly the same structure, they defended as well in terms of concentration um, and general competitiveness this season, that they would still concede more. Because like Tom said, last season was was a combination of defending well and probably being a little bit lucky as well. So this is something Barcelona have got to deal with. And when you concede from a pot shot from Jude Bellingham from, from that distance, um, yeah, it's uh, it's probably more in line with reality of what Barcelona are facing this season, that they are going to concede more goals and it's something they're going to have to offset. And then just on, we talk about Bellingham, just some of the stats from, from his time at Real Madrid so far 10 of his 13 goals have been scored from beyond the penalty spot his fourth goal uh, the, the second one was his fourth goal from inside the six yard box and he only seven of his 34 shots so far have been from outside the box and 
I think he just he got so tired of being chased by Gabby that he just said, I'm going to swing my foot at this and see what happens. And I think, yeah, there was an angle from Ter Stegen where he kind of saw it slightly late. And I, yeah, I've seen analysis of goalkeepers saying that that is the right strategy to go with your top hand and, and to kind of try to get it across. But he was so close to it that maybe he could have gone with two hands and just panned it away. But maybe he was just trying to be a, a little bit too fancy. But just on another player who has I, I would say he definitely struggled in this game and he has kind of struggled in general this season Vinicius Tom do you, are you concerned about Vinicius's form and, and what do you put it down to do you put it down to a change in the position do you put it down to everything that's gone on around him in in the last year or so or do you, do you think it's just a matter of um, a matter of time I mean in this game you put it down to Araujo because every time he faces Araujo he just can't really seem to get the better of him and I mean I think it was zero out of four completed dribbles this this game for Vinicius Araujo wasn't dribbled past obviously he wasn't responsible for all of those tackles but Vinicius couldn't really get by him but yeah as you said I think the position is is a big one he's playing a lot more centrally um, and you know he's not really when he's receiving the ball now, he, he's closer to defenders, he's closer to centre-backs. He, he, he has to you know, react quickly and kind of gain that separation as quickly as he can in order to then you know, start running towards the penalty area. Whereas last season, he'd receive the ball on the flanks, he had a bit more space, he had time to wait for you know, overlapping and underlapping runs to take defenders away from him. Now it's all a little bit more congested and I think that is where Vinicius is struggling to impose his game, which is, which is running at, at defenders. Um, on whether I see it as, a, as an issue, not particularly, um, but Vinicius himself won't be happy. Um, I think the team are, you know, obviously Bellingham is is making up for the lack of goals of Benzema and, and the bit Vinicius as well. Um, but I think he still has that ability. He's also coming back from an injury. I'm, I'm not sure how severe that, that, that knock he, he got against Celta is or whether he's still feeling that a little bit. But I, th- I think the goals and, and, and the assists will come as he gets a little bit more used to that position. Yeah, I mean, um, me and Robbie have spoken this season about how Vinicius might be feeling about the fact that he's he's not really he's not he's not the man anymore at Real Madrid because Bellingham has come in and stolen the spotlight. But in a way, he's also covering for for how we might speak about Vinicius's performances this season um, without that because. You know, if Bellingham doesn't come up with the two goals in this game, we're probably, or at least in Madrid, they're they're analysing Vinicius and Rodrigo's performances in a in a pretty negative way. So that's the thing with Bellingham now. He's he's scoring at an unbelievable rate. He's sustaining results for Real Madrid, um, rescuing results for Real Madrid as well. So without that, we we would probably be having a much bigger debate about Vinicius. So. There's a strange, yeah. There's a strange combination of him losing protagonism as as the face of Real Madrid, but also Bellingham is kind of controlling the narrative a bit and keeping things balanced by his the fact that he is still deciding games for for Real Madrid and obviously the Clasico, which none bigger than that to to do it in. Obviously, the, the Bellingham. The inevitability of Jude Bellingham is just everyone is talking about it now. And at the start of the season, after watching him like three, four, or five times, me and Jamie were kind of having to relax a little bit. I was just like, I've never actually never seen anything like this. 
and then I was just, you know, the way we kind of second guessing yourself. I was wondering, oh, am I am I exaggerating this? But I, I kind of felt this instinct where I was like, no, th- this guy is definitely special. And do, do you think that this can continue, Tom, or or do you think it's do you think this is Jude Bellingham's team now, or do you think that they do have a Bellingham dependencia? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It's funny. I was I was making like a, an XG kind of shot graph the other day where it has his role in kind of goals per game and his xg per game and i actually had to extend the y-axis like further to the normal kind of <laughs> setting because he was just he absolutely just shot up like into the stratosphere is unbelievable so that in and of itself suggests that yeah maybe we should be a little bit cautious that this can't go on forever because you know obviously in comparison to how bellingham has played in previous seasons this is so much more attacking um, you look at his kind of XG per shot as well. I think it's gone up by like 0.09 per shot up to like 0.18. So it's more or less doubled. His, his, the distance of his shots are just so much closer. So, yeah, it's a difficult one. He, he's obviously going to continue to get into these positions. Whether he continues to finish as well as he does is, is, is a different thing altogether. So I don't think the goals will ever completely dry up for him because in a team like Real Madrid with the technical quantity you've got, he's still going to be able to, you know, find himself in these areas. But whether it carries on at just the rate it, it is at the moment where it's almost laughable that you know we scored again he scored again he scored again whether that continues well yeah well, we'll have to see <laughs> yeah just one thing to add as well he's he's probably maxed out um on his his number of goals that have come from rebounds mm-hmm. from uh from very close range that's one thing that is definitely not going to continue uh further into the season because we can talk about, you know, that he was lucky for the last goal. And there's definitely an element of luck, but it was funny watching the game again that I'd say about 15 seconds before he scores the goal, there's there's an image of Valverde and Carvajal just stood on the right side of the pitch with their hands on their knees, like gasping for air. And then Bellingham is the guy making the, you know, the, the last, you know, the run in the last few minutes when everybody else is still kind of stood still. So... This that, that's something that is part of Bellingham's game. It always will be. He keeps running, and he has the capacity to run when everybody else is is kind of wilting under under the fatigue of the match. But you just wonder with the amount of football that he's playing, will those runs start to you know de- decrease in volume as the season goes on? Because you know he's he's absolutely full gas for ninety five minutes every week. You know multiple times a week. So along with knowing that the goals are going to drive eventually is the way that he's going to find or the way that he's found the goals so far going to dry up a little bit as well, because it, a lot of it is based on physicality and he's, he's really got his, his foot on the gas, uh, you know, to, to the absolute maximum at the moment. Yeah. You essentially need in La Liga, you essentially need two players because you, they had Gavi who did a really good job on him for 60 minutes, but, but no one man can do that for 90 minutes, possibly. But there's no teams in La Liga that have backups to their defensive midfielders who, who can go with Gavi or who can go with Bellingham like that. So La Liga, Bellingham can always do that as long as they keep him fresh. And even on days maybe when he has an off day, this is when you want Vinicius. This is when you want Modric to come on. This is when you want... Ancelotti to completely deviate and bring on Jose Lu, bring on Brahim Diaz, change the ch- change the landscape a little bit. 
in the Champions League, teams, and as they go on through the season, you do have teams who, you've got a team like maybe Man City, who, who do have a player who can do that for 60 minutes, Bellingham wears them out, and they bring on someone just as good, and they don't actually, they don't lose as much either by by focusing on that. So, yeah, the, the Champions League is going to be tough, and they're going to need Vinicius to, to hit top gear then, but I think for now, I think just, Jude Bellingham is inevitable, and we have to accept that. So, yeah, so right now, La Liga looks like Real Madrid sit at the top on 28 points, just ahead of Girona on goal difference. Then Atletico Madrid, who are hitting uh, top form too, and if they win their game in hand, they'll also be on 28, 28 points. And Barcelona then on 24, four points behind Real Madrid, Girona, and possibly Atletico Madrid. Just finally, lads, Tom, first, do we have a title race here? Definitely, yeah. Um, as as much as I want Girona to stay in it, um, surely that's they're, they're going to meet their their match come towards the end of the season. They're going to hit a bit of a sticky patch of form and they're going to drop out, which which will make me very sad. But that's that's how it goes when you've not got a team stacked with a t- technical quantity that Real Madrid do, that Barcelona do, and Atletico Madrid do. But yeah, between those three, I can definitely see. A really interesting title race, and I think easy to say that it's it's you know Real Madrid are the favourites after they've just won the Clasico. But I do think you know for some of the reasons we've discussed in this podcast um, that just they have a bit more of an edge in terms of physicality, durability, and yeah, that that Bellingham factor. How how long will that continue? Yeah, um, yeah. There's watching Atletico the other night. I, I know they won two one. And it, it got a little bit hairy at the end, but you see the way they played for sixty minutes, the way that they they don't suffocate by having possession now. You know, they welcome having 65 percent possession and and being able to move the ball around. So, Atletico look look very good at the moment. I don't think Barcelona should be too underwhelmed by by classical defeat. I know it's a hard one to take, but their performance was was pretty good for. For most of that game, and they they played better for for longer than than Real Madrid did. So, still very much on. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Tom that it's going to be sad when Girona inevitably fall away. But I think for them, the fact that they're already nine points ahead of Real Sociedad is is incredible. Um, I think. Well, I remember saying I think Real Sociedad are the fourth best team in Spain at the moment despite Girona's form, but for Girona to have that gap on them, you know, that is that makes Champions League qualification really interesting this season. Yeah, Barcelona play Real Sociedad next weekend. They get a week break because there's no football midweek this week, but they play Real Sociedad and that could be another chance for Real Sociedad to take points off them and, and we'll just see where they end up after that, but we'll leave it there for now. Tom, thanks a million for coming on. Can you just let us know where to find your work and what you're working on in the, uh, this week? Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, I'm on The Athletic. Um, and yeah, what am I working on this week? We've got a, an interesting one coming up about um, yeah, superstitions and, and changing ends when, uh, when players and when teams go and play at big grounds. So we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But yeah, um, lots of different things. My name on it. I'm just uh, helping people with different data requests. So you'll see my name across the site. So you're just watching lots of football, yes. basically. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Same as us. Jamie, as always, thanks a million, and it's always a pleasure. But from us here on La Pausa Pod, it's adios.